0: Hi and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello, Happy New Year, Merry Christmas. Welcome to our second and final episode on the Seventh Commandment, You Shall Not Steal. So, In our last episode, we talked about what this commandment means for us as individuals. And in this episode, we're going to consider the relevance of this commandment on a kind of macro scale. So we're going to think about the church's teachings on economic and social life. Now, the first question we might ask here is, why does the church have an opinion on like the economy? <laughs> you know how you hear people say that, that like the church should just keep out of civil matters, right? It's not her place to have an opinion about political life or social life. She should just stick to the spiritual stuff. Well, the answer to that objection is, yep, <laughs> that's precisely what she's doing, right? The spiritual and the material are not disconnected from each other. The stuff of this world, so money and jobs and social life, these are the means, the stuff that we use to get to heaven. So for that reason, It matters to the church. And that doesn't mean that the church always has an opinion on every single economic, you know, social detail. However, at points when it matters, the church can and should have an opinion. So point 2420 of the Catechism says that the church makes a moral judgment about these things when the fundamental rights of the person or the salvation of souls requires it. Okay, so the church doesn't just go around flinging out, you know, random opinions about the economy, but when there's a question that affects our salvation, then she has an opinion. Having said that, while it is the church's job to teach these kind of fundamental principles around you know, the economy, it's not the church's job to run the economy or to run a country. So point 2442 says that it is not the role of the pastors of the church to intervene directly in the political structuring and organization of social life. This is the task of the lay faithful. So you're never going to see your local bishop running for political office, but he might release a statement about the church's social doctrine in the lead up to an election to help you to vote. So the church gives us the principles, but then it's our job as the laity to actually enact them. It's kind of like how, you know, your teachers will help you to understand the ideas and then you actually have to go and do the exam or your parents can teach you virtue, but then you have to go and live a virtuous life. Okay, great. So, with that said, let's take a look at what the church teaches about economic life. Now, the first thing to remember is that money and earning money is important, right? But it is not and should not ever become the number one isolated, most important thing. So, point 2423 of the Catechism says that any system in which social relationships are determined entirely by economic factors, is contrary to the nature of the human person and his acts. So human beings are complex and we are spiritual beings and our needs revolve around more than just money. Money is a means and not an end. So any political system, whether it's on the right or the left end of the spectrum, that's overly focused on money and the economy, actually ends up committing a kind of theft, right? Because it eventually denies all of the other elements that human beings need to live a full life. So, for example, if you had a political system or a political party in which decisions were always or almost always made according to how much things cost, how much profit they're making, right, this sort of obsession with how the economy is going – That can lead us to devalue things like the arts or philosophy or family life or social life. And this is what ends up happening with systems like, you know, communism, where the entire functioning of a society revolves around a set of economic principles rather than a holistic understanding of all of the needs of the human person. So point 2426 says that economic life is not meant solely to multiply goods and increase power or profit. It is ordered, first of all, to the service of persons, of the whole man and of the entire human community. So money, not the most important thing, but it is an important thing. Okay. Money matters. So how should it be used? How should money and property be earned and regulated and distributed and shared among citizens of a nation? Well, if you remember in the last episode, we talked about how the whole of creation is essentially for everyone. However, within that, I also have a right to personal property. So the same principle applies to economic systems. Okay, we should always aim to balance the universal destination of goods. So everything is for everyone with the right to private property. And that means that any economic system that overly focuses on one of these things to the exclusion of the other, so extreme forms of capitalism and socialism, end up devaluing human persons. So point 2425 of the Catechism says that the church has refused to accept in the practice of capitalism individualism and the absolute primacy of the law of the marketplace over human labor. So in other words, a version of the kind of hard capitalism in the words of Peter Kraft that's you know all about my private property and the total freedom to do whatever I want with my money, that is considered unacceptable in the eyes of the church. And the problem with this kind of individualistic mentality is that it ignores the common good. It ignores the fact that the Earth's resources are limited and they need to be shared with others. So there's this fantastic bit in one of my favorite shows ever, Parks and Recreation, where there's this character, Ron Swanson, who is just a total libertarian capitalist. And he's trying to explain what taxes are to this little primary school girl. And so he just like picks up her lunch and just starts eating it. And this little girl is like, hey, that's not fair. That's my lunch. You can't just eat my lunch. And Ron, is like, exactly. He's like, that is what the government does when it taxes you. And this little girl's like, oh, I hate the government. Taxes are stupid and it's hilarious, but it is a complete distortion of how the economy works. What Ron Swanson is leaving out of this picture is that in this analogy, your lunch... Okay, yes, it's yours, but it has been taken from a buffet and that buffet is limited and it's there for everyone, right? So if you've got too much food on your plate, then things might need to be redistributed a bit. Because I remember when I was a kid at Easter time, We would always have like an Easter egg hunt. And after it was over, my mum would like go around to all the older cousins who'd found way more eggs than everyone else. And she'd like grab a handful off each of them and just put them in the baskets of the younger cousins who only had two or three. It's a kind of appropriate degree of regulation and redistribution that just made things a little bit more fair. So point 2425 says that the reasonable regulation of the marketplace and economic initiatives with a view to the common good is to be commended. Having said that, we can't then go to the other end of the spectrum, right? Where we over-regulate and we over-redistribute and end up denying people's right to private property. So if we go back to the Easter egg hunt analogy, you can imagine a situation where after the the hunt was over, all of the kids have to like pour all their eggs into one big communal bowl. And then my mum kind of stands there and hands out each egg, you know, one by one to each kid. In a situation like that, you kind of start to wonder, well, why have an Easter egg hunt in the first place, right? Like part of the joy of that game is that you get to keep a reasonable amount of the eggs that you found. It's like it's sort of just reward for your labors. So in an encyclical called Rerum Novarum, Pope Leo XIII writes that when man turns the activity of his mind and the strength of his body towards procuring the fruits of nature, He makes his own that portion of nature's field which he cultivates. It is just that he should possess that portion as his very own. So in other words, it's a kind of cause and effect, right? When I work, I earn the right to possess the profits and the fruits of that work to a reasonable degree. So for this reason, the catechism says in point 2425 that the church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. So when it comes to economic life... Governments and societies always need to be striving for that balance, right? Where we can own our own stuff, we can start our own businesses, we can make money, we can buy property, but at the same time, there are appropriate limitations and interventions that mean that everyone kind of has access to the goods of the earth. Everyone gets a fair slice of that pie. Not necessarily, not exactly the same slice of that pie, right? That would be socialism, but a fair slice of that pie. And then within that balance, there are a number of options that we might take. So, you know, a country might lean slightly more towards a kind of economic socialism where maybe the taxes are higher and there's more emphasis on government-funded services. Or it might be slightly more capitalist, right, where there's more emphasis on private initiative and private property. Both of these things are okay, provided that we don't go too far in either direction. Okay, one of the other fundamental principles that the Catechism lays out Is the importance of work. So, work is something good. Point 2427 says that work is a duty. It's something that we need to do. In an encyclical called Laborum Exercens*, Pope John Paul II writes that work is a fundamental dimension of man's existence on earth. Okay, so Adam and Eve worked before the fall. Work isn't a consequence of original sin. It has always been part of God's original plan for the human person. So for that reason, no one, no country should ever be aiming for a kind of utopia where no one does any work. It's a good and a necessary thing. And why is that? Why is work so important? Well, the Catechism outlines three key reasons. First of all, when we work, we collaborate with God in the task of creation. So point 2427 says that we are called to prolong the work of creation by subduing the earth. So if you've ever played the computer game, The Sims, maybe I'm showing my age with that reference. I used to love The Sims as a kid. But in that game, you create these little like computer people, right? And then you put them in a little home that you have designed yourself. And then you get to control their lives. You get to decide what they're going to do and when. That is not how God made us. Right? God made us with free will and he wants us to get to know him and to work with him freely. So he gives us the earth and he says, okay, build me something, (laughs) right? Collaborate with me, be creative. What do you want to do? It's kind of like a mum playing Lego with her kid, right? It's relational. So when we work, that's what we do. Provided that we're not doing anything immoral, we are essentially playing with God, which is such a beautiful thing. And then, secondly, the Catechism says that in work, man honors the creator's gifts and the talents received from him. And we can see this in the parable of the talents in the gospels, right? So God gives us certain skills and gifts, and then by using them in our work, we show our gratitude to him. There's literally nothing worse than when you give someone a present and then 12 months later, you find it in the back of their closet and you realize that they never used it, right? Work is one of the key ways that we make use of the gifts that God has given us. And then finally, work can be redemptive. So the Catechism says that by enduring the hardship of work in union with Jesus, man collaborates in a certain fashion with the Son of God in his redemptive work. So if we go all the way back to our episodes on the crucifixion and resurrection way back when, we talked about how because of Christ's death and resurrection, Anything in our lives that is difficult, that causes us pain or effort or suffering or it's boring, all of that can be united to Christ's sacrifice on the cross and can become a means of growing closer to him and growing in holiness. And that includes our work. Now, the key, of course, with this is that we have to be offering our work to God and we have to be trying to do it well, right? Like if you're sitting at your desk on Instagram for five hours a day, that's not exactly something that you can, you know, unite to Christ's sacrifice on the cross and be like, oh, look, God, I did this for you. Okay, But when we offer work well done to God, it can become the stuff that makes us saints. So St. Maria has this awesome quote. I love it. He says, It is time for us Christians to shout from the rooftops that work is a gift from God. All work bears witness to the dignity of man. It is an opportunity to develop one's personality. It is a bond of union with others, the way to support one's family, a means of aiding in the progress of all humanity. It is a means and path of holiness. And that's a kind of condensed version of the full quote. And I actually recommend reading the whole thing because St. Maria basically perfectly summarizes the church's teachings in this area. So I'll put a link to the full quote in the show notes. Now, while work is a good thing, it doesn't Always follow that it is an easy or a conflict free thing. So, point 2430 says that economic life brings into play different interests, often opposed to one another. This explains why conflicts arise. So, anyone who has worked in any workplace ever will know the truth of this. There are often conflicts between workers and their bosses around wages, working conditions, the workplace environment, etc. So what do we do when these conflicts arise? What's the best way to resolve them? Well, the Catechism says that first and foremost, efforts should be made to reduce these conflicts by negotiation that respects the rights and duties of each. Okay, so step one, negotiation, trying to find a solution that is fair for everyone. However, the Catechism goes on to say in point 2435 that recourse to a strike is is morally legitimate when it cannot be avoided or at least when it is necessary to obtain a proportionate benefit. So, when you've exhausted all of the other means of, you know, negotiation, it might become necessary to strike. However, the catechism points out that a strike becomes morally unacceptable when accompanied by violence or when objectives are included that are not directly linked to working conditions or are contrary to the common good. So for example, you know, if you held a strike because, you know, you didn't like your boss's political opinions and you wanted to force your workplace to fire him, okay, that wouldn't be just. A a strike isn't just a tool, an arbitrary tool that you get to use to get what you want, okay? It has to be about seeking a proportionate benefit because it is necessary. I think I might have mentioned this in an earlier episode, but if you want to think more about these ideas, I really recommend reading or watching North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, because that book slash the BBC series is really interested in wrestling with these ideas. Also, the BBC series features Richard Armitage and his silken baritone voice. So, you know, everyone wins. (laughs) Okay, and then the final principle of social and economic life that the Catechism discusses in this section is love for the poor. So, point 2448 of the Catechism says that human misery, in all its forms, elicited the compassion of Christ the Saviour, who willingly took it upon himself and identified himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty are the object of a preferential love on the part of the church. So, in other words, Our Lord demonstrated a particular love and compassion for the poor and the suffering to such an extent that he actually freely took on their poverty and their pain and identified himself with them. So as Christians, we are called to imitate Christ by having a preferential love for the poor, putting the poor first, right, in a way that isn't just, you know, nice feelings from a distance, but actually involves actively entering into the concerns and the needs of others. So what does that mean on a grander scale for societies and nations? Well, point 2439 says that rich nations have a grave moral responsibility towards those which are unable to ensure the means of their development by themselves. So that responsibility involves a few things. Firstly, it involves providing aid in the event of natural catastrophes, epidemics and the like. Secondly, it involves helping poorer countries to find lasting solutions to economic and social problems and supporting their efforts for growth and liberation. So there are a couple of things in there. First of all, the catechism points out that it's not just a matter of making grand gestures in emergency situations, right? Wealthy nations actually need to provide ongoing assistance to help poorer countries get back on their feet. And then secondly, note that the catechism talks about supporting other countries' efforts for growth and liberation, not taking over or directing their efforts. So countries, wealthy countries, don't have the right to kind of come swinging in and being like, okay, you've got these problems and we're just going to solve them all for you, right? And here we return to the principle of subsidiarity, which we discussed in episode 30. Countries have the right to do their own thing, right, wherever they can, but they should be supported by wealthier nations in whatever they can't do on their own. And then finally, and this is really important, the catechism talks about the need for wealthier countries to reform their own economic and financial institutions to better promote equitable relationships with less advanced countries. So in other words, you need to make sure that your own country isn't actively exploiting others, right? There's something obviously hypocritical about providing foreign aid when at the same time you're financially exploiting the same country. And we said this in our last episode, but it bears repeating that when we do all of these things, when we give to the poor, in the words of the catechism, we are paying a debt of justice. We give them what is theirs, not ours. So wealthier nations helping poorer nations, that is not an optional extra. It is a fundamental responsibility. Now, Aside from providing economic, sort of practical aid, wealthier nations also need to provide spiritual human development for poorer ones. And the reason for this is, as the Catechism says in point 2441, an increased sense of God and increased self awareness are fundamental to any full development of human society. So we come back to what we talked about earlier that like money and practical stuff, yes, that's all important. But we have this spiritual element to us that needs to be nourished. Now, here when we talk about wealthy and poor nations, we're using those terms in a spiritual rather than a financial sense. Okay, so today many economically developed nations, like technically wealthy nations, are actually experiencing increased spiritual poverty, okay? They are actually the poor countries in this situation, and they need the wisdom and the faith and you know, evangelization from other countries. So there's this great article on the Word on Fire website where it says that African and Asian priests now ministering in Western countries can reasonably be called Catholic missionaries. But also, historically, people from Western nations have acted and, and continue to act as missionaries, right? Bringing the gospel to other countries. Now, unfortunately, in times at times in the past, that kind of missionary project has been tied up with a kind of colonial mindset, right? So an imposition of a specifically European way of life. However... <laughs> That does not mean that evangelization is the same thing as colonization, right? So the whole point of Christianity is that it is Catholic with a small c, so meaning universal. Like, let's think about it. If we believe that God genuinely exists, right, that he loves everyone, that he became a human being and died for everyone, then it follows that that message is applicable to everyone, right? It should be shared with everyone. It's not the sole property of a single culture. So we can look at things like Our Lady of Guadalupe or Our Lady of Cabejo or La Misa Crioja, right? For examples of the adaptability of the faith to different cultures. Maybe this is an area that we can do a full episode on sometime. But for now, if you want to think about this more, I'll include that link to the article from Word on Fire for anyone who's interested. Okay, so far in this episode, we've talked a lot about big political, economic, social ideas. But before we wrap up, Let's just bring it back down to the level of the personal, right? Let's end by thinking about what I can personally do as a Christian to live this preferential love for the poor. And we talked about this, obviously, in the last episode. But one of the things that we didn't cover in our last episode was the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, So point 2447 of the catechism says that the works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of the neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities. So the kind of, you know, practical things that we can do for the poor. So the spiritual works of mercy include firstly instructing. So, sharing your faith with other people, right? Giving a catechism class, leading by example, okay, that's a spiritual work of mercy. There's also advising, right? Offering advice to other people. So, when someone comes to you and asks your opinion about a big decision in their life, and then maybe you pray about it and you come back to them with an answer, or, you know, if you act as a mentor to someone else, those are works of mercy. And then thirdly, we have consoling and comforting someone else. So if you're just like sitting with your friend who's just failed an exam or, you know, he's just gone through a breakup, right? Well, you invite your friend over for a movie and an ice cream and a big cry because they're going through a lot at the moment. That is a spiritual work of mercy. And then finally, we have forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. I find that so interesting that that is considered a work of mercy to forgive Like when you forgive, if you think about it, you are opening the door to reconciliation, right? You're offering a path to healing. So basically you are making it as easy as possible for that other person to be reconciled both to you and to God. And that is an act of mercy to not let your anger get in the way of their repentance and their salvation. Okay, so those are the spiritual works of mercy. And then the corporal works of mercy include feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned and burying the dead. And I think, well, maybe this is just me, but I feel like today, it's very easy to kind of assume that these corporal works of mercy are like someone else's job or that someone else will do them, right? Like someone else will help that homeless person or visit that person in prison or in a nursing home. Or maybe we can get sort of so overwhelmed by the sheer number of people who need our help in the world that we end up just kind of nupping out because it's just too much and we can't fix all of the problems in the world. And that's true, right? We can't. But often, there is something little that we can do within the realm of our abilities and availabilities. So maybe, you know, we don't have the capacity to, you know, invite someone who's sleeping rough to come and live in my home, right? But I can, you know, go and visit someone in the nursing home. So for instance, my mom is a high school teacher and every week at her school, they do sport for a few hours. And there's always a group of students who, for whatever reason, can't or don't want to do sport. So my mum got permission from the school to kind of like round up these kids and just take them to the local nursing home once a week to visit the elderly. And it's a work of mercy, not just for the people in the nursing home, but also for those kids, right, who might never have been given an opportunity like that to get out of themselves and do something for someone else. So there's always little things that we can do, you know, within the realm of like my job, my capacities, my state of life my abilities and maybe that's something that we can think about as we start the new year you know what is something practical that i can do to show that preferential love for the poor so in the lead up to christmas um, pope francis made five suggestions of concrete things that christians can do to help the poor and they were one call a person who is alone so just ring your friend if they're living on their own or your grandparent or whatever two, visit an elderly or sick person three Do something to serve a poor person or a person in need. Four, ask for forgiveness, forgive, clear up any conflict or pay a debt. And then five, return to prayer and draw near to the forgiveness of God. Okay, so I'll just leave that one with you. I think those are some really good practical suggestions. Okay, so that's it for the Seventh Commandment. Um, just before we wrap up, I just want to say a quick thank you to the people who have reached out so far and made suggestions for the future of the podcast. Um, we're actually coming up to the end of the catechism over the next you know, couple of months. And once the catechism is done, we will have total freedom to just think about topics that might be useful or that you might want to hear more about on the podcast. So I've had requests from people to talk about, you know, the lives of the saints or the rosary or doctrinal issues and questions. And I just want to invite you, if you have any suggestions of topics that you'd like to see covered, just shoot me an email. My email address is in the show notes, or you can get in touch with me via Instagram. Um, I read all of the messages that I get and I really, really appreciate hearing from you because, and I've said this before, but this podcast is for you, right? So it's super helpful Helpful to know what you need and what would be helpful. Okay, great. So that's it for me for today. Next episode, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics of all time, which is truth. <laughs> I'm so excited for this topic. Okay. woohoo! Well, I hope that you have a fantastic fortnight and I will talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.